HIV AIDS has reached an existential moment. As COVID-19 continues to pose geopolitical risks, there is a threat that the progress made over the past 40 years in the fight to end the AIDS pandemic will be undone. COVID-19 has exacerbated social and economic inequalities, placed further stress on weak health systems, and highlighted the urgent need to strengthen global health security. In managing these dual pandemics, the global health community must adapt, protect, and integrate approaches to sustain momentum toward ending HIV-AIDS while continuing to respond to COVID-19. In this podcast, we speak to experts, community leaders, and people living with HIV about the progress toward reaching the new targets outlined in the 2021 Political Declaration on HIV and AIDS, the current geopolitical climate, why it is important to continue prioritizing HIV-AIDS, and what can be done to strengthen health security in low- and middle-income countries. This is AIDS Existential Moment. Hello, I'm Jeff Sturchio, a senior associate at the Global Health Policy Center here at CSIS. I'm pleased to join Chris Bearer for a conversation today about issues at the intersection of the HIV-AIDS and COVID-19 pandemics and the prospects for an integrated and sustainable global response. Chris trained at the Downstate Medical Center School of Medicine of the State University of New York, then obtained his MPH at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health in 1991, which is actually 30 years ago this year. He's now the Desmond M. Tutu Professor of Public Health and Human Rights at the Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School, where he also serves as a Professor of Epidemiology, International Health, Health Behavior and Society, and Nursing. He's director of the Johns Hopkins Training Program in HIV Epidemiology and Prevention Science and is founding director of the Center for Public Health and Human Rights. As if that weren't enough to keep him busy, he's also the associate director of the Johns Hopkins Center for AIDS Research and the University's Center for Global Health. I could probably take the entire time of the podcast just to talk about all of the things that Chris has done in his varied and distinguished career. But the most important point and the reason that I, I'm so glad to be talking to him today is that he has extensive experience in conducting international collaborative research and training programs in HIV AIDS and other infectious disease epidemiology, in infectious disease prevention research, HIV among key populations, and in health and human rights. As uh, director of the Johns Hopkins Fogarty AIDS International Training and Research Program, he provided fellowships for over 1,400 international scholars in HIV-AIDS prevention, research, and treatment. And he's done extensive fieldwork in Thailand, in Burma, China, India, across Southeast Asia, in Russia and Kazakhstan, in Malawi, South Africa, and in the U.S. on HIV-AIDS epidemiology, prevention, and care and treatment. He's a well-published author. Uh, his 1998 book, War in the Blood, Sex, Politics, and AIDS in Southeast Asia, and a uh, book that uh, I know quite well. He was the co-editor of Public Health and Human Rights, Evidence-Based Approaches. So I'm delighted to welcome Chris to the podcast. So now that we're approaching two years into the global coronavirus pandemic, you know, it's time to consider what impact COVID-19 has had on continuing efforts 
to address HIV-AIDS in countries around the world. People living with HIV-AIDS are at greater risk of being infected with COVID-19, and that's due to a range of factors, including comorbidities. And we know that the COVID-19 pandemic has been disruptive of societies and health systems globally, as wave after wave of infections have had a direct impact on hundreds of millions of individuals. Hospitalizations due to severe cases of COVID-19 have strained health systems, causing a shift of healthcare workers and other resources from HIV-AIDS and other existing programs to deal with SARS-CoV-2. Laboratory testing facilities used for HIV viral load, early infant diagnosis, and TB testing for HIV-TB co-infection have been inundated with demand for COVID-19 tests. And the public health measures to limit transmission of the virus, including lockdowns, border crossings, pressure on logistics and distribution workforces, have led to interruptions in global supply chains uh, and also to effects on global HIV-AIDS programs, as we've seen from both the Global Fund and PEPFAR. So why don't we start with, with two questions, Chris? Why are people living with HIV-AIDS at greater risk of being infected with COVID-19? And how have the disruptions from COVID-19 over the past 20 months affected the continuity of HIV-AIDS testing, treatment, and care around the world? Yeah, really critically important question. So I'll say with the first, in terms of the, the impacts of COVID on people living with HIV, that there's there's been a lot of work on multiple aspects of these interactions. The clinical data looks like around an, an 8 to 10% increase in the likelihood of severe disease hospitalization and death. So there's definitely at some level an immunological aspect to this. It may be due to the fact that uh, you know HIV does cause, even in people who are well-treated and virally suppressed, ongoing immune activation, and so does COVID. So, so that may be a part of why there's that clinical interaction. But then there are really important other uh, effects, and those, of course, have more to do with the impacts on healthcare systems and the fact that people with HIV, and particularly people with HIV and TB co-infection, are reliant on healthcare systems mm -hmm. to some degree to get their meds and to get their treatment. And, of course, those disruptions have been really dramatic. It's also the case, of course, that you know HIV is not evenly distributed globally. It still is predominantly a disease of sub-Saharan Africa and, and other low- and middle-income countries, Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And many of these places have had both severe COVID outbreaks and have limited and in some cases almost no access to COVID vaccines. So what we're seeing, unfortunately, is an ongoing kind of inter interaction of these two great pandemics uh, in many, many settings. I think when you look at the overall healthcare system disruptions of COVID, one of the things that very quickly emerges is that People, by which I mean both providers, health systems, and communities and affected persons, really worked hard to avoid treatment interruptions. Everybody understood that we really don't want treatment interruptions for people living with virus. And there was a lot of innovation in good ways around that. So, for example, extending prescription periods and giving people three months or six months supply instead of just a month and reducing the foot traffic in clinics and, and providing all kinds of, of supports for people living with virus. But the area that we're most concerned about and where the data, I think, are still emerging, and of course, 
we're still in the middle of this pandemic. So it's, uh, you know, uh, neither HIV nor COVID are anywhere near under control uh, in much of the world, is that what has been hardest hit is what we would call elective procedures. So all kinds of what, you know, what is not emergent, what you could do at another time, from cancer screening to childhood immunizations to, to contraceptive services, and of course, to HIV testing, pre-exposure prophylaxis, all the things that seem to many of us less urgent than, for example, staying on antiviral therapy if you're living with virus. Those have been the hardest hit. And not surprisingly, what we've seen is a dramatic decline in HIV testing and in TB testing and screening. And that, of course, means we're picking up fewer infections. It doesn't mean that they're not there. It means that we're not. <laughs> we're not identifying them in timely fashion. And you know, the longer-term impacts of that are going to be felt, I think, for a long time. And of course, you know, as I said, right now, sadly, Africa remains the most affected continent for HIV AIDS, and it is the least vaccinated anywhere. And we're still not even at 5% of eligible adults across the continent uh, having COVID vaccines. So their disruptions, their, their impacts of Delta, hospitalizations, deaths from COVID are ongoing and are not really very different than they were last year. So 2022 is going to be another year of COVID and HIV interactions. And unless we do a whole lot better, so is 2023. Mm -hmm. I think that's realistic. Yeah, well, you mentioned that, for instance, HIV testing and uh, also voluntary male circumcision and other prevention modality have both had significant declines in the last year you know, by more than 20%. Interestingly, you mentioned the idea of multi-month dispensing and how people are really focused on making sure that there was continuity in treatment because that's so important to prevent the emergence of resistant virus with HIV that one of the few bright spots in the Global Fund's report on the interactions of HIV and COVID was that treatment actually went up by yes. 8%. Yep. yep. So, um, so, you know, that shows that... Yeah. You know, and, and malaria didn't seem to be so affected. And again, you know, an acute malaria infection is not elective, right? You're sick and you need treatment. Certainly from the Global Fund report, the most disturbing outcomes really were the TB outcomes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So there's still a lot of work that has to be done because, as you say, you know, the COVID pandemic is not over, and we're uh, and particularly in in lower and middle income countries where you know vaccination rates are just nowhere near where they need to be. You know, one of the things we've been learning from the the experience of the COVID pandemic is that pandemics like this illuminate existing disparities in care and treatment. You know that there are inequalities all over the world, and viruses find those and exploit them. And, you know, so, you know, that's true whether we're talking about developing countries or developed countries because, you know, we know there are disparities in care here in the U.S. as well as in other countries. So, you know, can you talk a little bit about what impact the, the dual pandemics have had on key populations, you know, who were already finding it a challenge to get access to the treatment they needed? Yeah, I think I think the uh, we have to have a quite a, an expansive definition of key populations when we talk about these interactions. So, just to give you one really prominent example and one that I've worked on a lot in the US and also with the South Africans, and that is prisoners and detainees. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all over the world, there's a higher rate of HIV infection in persons in incarceration than outside of incarceration. A lot of that, of course, has to do with substance use and who ends up in jail, but it also has to do with sex work and a number of other factors that put people at risk for both HIV and incarceration. 
it's remarkable. We reviewed the, the data from Sub-Saharan Africa for a special issue of The Lancet that I uh, guest edited for the 2016 International AIDS Conference in Durban and looked at how many Sub-Saharan African countries had active antiviral programs for people in prisons across the continent. And the answer is nine. So the great majority of African countries are not providing antiviral therapy to people in prison, despite very high rates in incarceration. And if you've ever been inside prisons uh, in the developing world, they are perfect places for respiratory viral transmission. They're crowded. They're poorly ventilated. Many of the people there uh, have insufficient nutrition. Uh, there isn't a good hygiene. There are all kinds of shared spaces for bathrooms and wh when there are uh, shower facilities, kitchens, all shared crowded spaces. So we were not at all surprised that COVID was going to turn out to be a very serious epidemic in prisons and jails. That happened all across the U.S. We worked frantically. I did declarations in 16 states trying to get people to decarcerate and reduce the numbers of people in detention precisely because we knew what was going to happen. It turned out to be, you know, you hate to be proven wrong by human suffering, but we were absolutely right about that. And it uh, was a, you know, a preventable tragedy. That is true across the African continent. So prisoners and detainees are a population that were really very hard hit and where there's, again, a great deal of overlap, both with HIV and TB. And we should remember that in Eastern Europe and Central Asia, where all of this also prevails, in-prison TB has played an enormous role in also in the TB epidemics mm -hmm. in communities. And that's been well documented. And MDR-TB which also is a very much a detention and prison associated infection. And one again that the Global Fund pointed out has gone off a cliff with COVID. So that's an important population. When we look at refugees and migrants, this is also a group who traditionally have not been so much of a key population for HIV necessarily. A lot of it depends on, you know, if people are going to a higher burden country or they're coming from a high burden country. So, but nevertheless, they're people who have limited access to services. And in COVID, this has been a disaster. So I've been, for example, involved with the Rohingya population in Bangladesh. So, of course, initially no access to vaccines, very little access to PPE, terrible hygiene conditions. And then Bangladesh announced that Cox's Bazaar, which is where the, the one hospital with any kind of tertiary care, has one intensive care unit, had six beds, none of them were functional. And so the Rohingya were told, there's no hospitalization for you. If you have COVID, God be with you, essentially. The health care that was available in the camp was it. So these people, and we have to remember that in 2021, we have more displaced people than we have ever had in human history. We're getting up around 86 million. These are another group who have proven to be terribly vulnerable in many settings. Then, of course, you know, there are the classical HIV key populations, like, for example, sex workers in sub-Saharan Africa. So it's been a very tough time to be a sex worker. It's been a very tough time all over the world to be unstably housed, because as those of us who are housed have been staying at home and in lockdown, people who are on the street, including sex workers and including unstably housed people, are kind of alone with the police. <laughs> and there's been a significant increase in police-related violence and harassment of these populations, and of course, interruptions in all kinds of services that many of them had used. So that has been a challenge. 
I think the other group that we're very concerned about, but for slightly different reasons, is the adolescent population. Mm -hmm. And as you know, in sub-Saharan Africa, we have a huge youth bulge. Uh, adolescent girls and young women are a key population for HIV in that context. It has been a very, very tough time to be an adolescent. Mental health issues, substance use issues, that has really been devastating. And, and I think just to say the last thing from the U.S. perspective, the mental health challenges with this pandemic have been major. Uh, and one of those outcomes has been the sharp increase in overdose deaths. Mm -hmm. So 2020 is an outlier year for overdose deaths. Uh, 2021 is looking badly <laughs> uh, in the same way. And, you know, that's for a lot of reasons. People have not been able to get into clinics, mental health services, again, what are considered elective services, not available to people, people using at home and using alone, so more likely to overdose unwitnessed. And all of those factors uh, have led to, you know, 2020, we had more than 90,000 overdose deaths. Mm. That's a huge number. You know, it's, it's interesting as you were talking about these, the challenges that key populations face, both with HIV, AIDS and COVID-19. You know, it just strikes me that, you know, there's been so much work over the years to deal with HIV AIDS, which in which risk is related to certain behaviors. Yeah. Right. But with COVID-19, what's interesting is the only risk factor really is being human. Yes, yes. Although, you know, in this country, in the U.S., what we did see was that there's a, a huge occupational socioeconomic mm -hmm. risk. So it's being human, but also being a working class human. <laughs> yeah, well, actually, that's I wanted to get to this, too, because yeah. what you were as you were talking, I was also thinking that, you know, so, the, you know, being human puts you at risk. Yeah. But then from all the factors you were talking about, it's not, you know, being working class is one thing, but also just all the social determinants of health. Yeah where you live, where you work, where, what you eat, you know, you touched on all of those. Yeah. And yeah. it all comes together in kind of a perfect storm in thinking about a coordinated response to the pandemics that we face. Yeah. I mean, I will say at the beginning, so I pivoted from HIV as, of course, so many people <laughs> in the HIV field have done and worked with the COVID vaccine prevention network on the COVID vaccine trials. And early on, it was abundantly clear that particularly with the very first trial that the NIH funded, which was the Moderna trial, that they were using both HIV trial sites from the network, the HVTN, and then commercial clinical research sites. And they just enrolled just coming out of the starting gate explosively quickly. But very early on, by, by the time we had really the first six or 7,000 people enrolled, it was clear that the population was too young, mm -hmm. too healthy, and too white. Mm -hmm. And, you know, we just knew that we had to, first of all, enroll older Americans because that's who was really getting sick and getting hospitalized. And that if we had a trial that was overwhelmingly white Americans, we would have real problems with uptake and use in minority communities. So we really set a benchmark with the network that we wanted to get to at least U.S. demographic populations. So, you know, if it's if the U.S. is 13 percent African-American, at least 13 percent of people in the trial should mm -hmm. be African-American and that we needed at least 25 percent over age 65. So that was really what I was working on. And it worked remarkably well. We had a, it was a multi-pronged strategy that included getting out beyond 
science and the NIH and the CDC who are not always trusted voices in these communities and getting to, for example, faith leaders. We had a big faith initiative led by our HIV faith uh, initiative leadership, the Reverend Edwin Sanders, uh, Sanders from yeah. Nashville, Tennessee, who was just extraordinary in leading this effort. We had a big social media component that was very important. We used congressional and Latino black caucuses in the Congress to, uh, to get those voices out. We used the National Medical Association, African-American physicians, and really tried to, to get to the heart of that racial and ethnic divide. And it worked that we now, remarkably enough, for example, with the COVID vaccines, the ethnic group in this country with the highest vaccine coverage is Latino Americans, higher than whites. Uh, white and black rates are just about equal among adults. What we have is something new in my 30 years of doing this work that I've never seen before, which is a real... Uh, political divide. So now the predictor of whether or not you are hospitalized and whether or not you are going to die of COVID, the best predictor is not race, ethnicity, still age, of course, but the best social predictor is whether the county you live in went for Biden or went for Trump in mm -hmm. 2020. And there's actually a dose-response relationship there. The counties that were 70% or more in either direction are either the best protected or the most vulnerable, <laughs> depending on blue or red. And that's extraordinary. That is a true political determinant of health. And I've never seen one so stark. You know, it's interesting you should point that out. I, John Nkengasong, who's the director of the African Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and who's the nominee to become the new global AIDS coordinator and yeah. lead the PEPFAR program for the U.S., was on a webinar this morning. One of the things he said about, you know, he's asked, what lessons have you learned from addressing these dual pandemics mm -hmm. in, in Africa? And he said, there are four Ps. You have to understand the pathogens. You have to understand the populations. You have to understand the policies and you have to understand the politics. And mm. what you just said made me think of that yeah, because it, yeah. you know, it's become such a stark fact about the, the response to the COVID pandemic in the U.S. Yeah. And in Africa, I, I, you know, I think we've, we've been surprised in a number of countries at how much hesitancy there is with the vaccines. And uh, some of that, of course, is warranted because they've also had access to the lower efficacy vaccines. And we're particularly concerned right now in many developing countries where they have focused on because they've had it, they've been able to get uh, Sinovac and the other Chinese vaccines, and they have low efficacy against Delta. Mm -hmm. Their efficacy wasn't great against the Wuhan strain, about at 51% for Sinovac, which is what they put into WHO for. But against Delta, it's only about 20% or lower. So people are seeing that these vaccines aren't terribly protective. That has been, for example, a big dynamic in Indonesia where they, they did a lot of effort of immunizing a significant proportion of their healthcare workforce with Sinovac. And then those folks weren't protected when they had a Delta wave. So that, that is, uh, I think, a real challenge. If you look actually at most of the world, we're still being very simplistic about saying vaccine coverage is this in country X and it's this in country Y. The real question is, what is the coverage with high efficacy vaccines? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and the high efficacy vaccines are a limited number here. You know, So for example, the Sinovac, Sinopharm are probably not high efficacy vaccines against Delta. I think that science is clear. And the Chinese 
know that. They bought 100 million doses of Pfizer and they're trying to manufacture mRNA. Mm -hmm. The Sputnik V has always been clouded by uncertainty because they approved it before they did the efficacy trial in Russia. Uh, and so that is an, a really an uncertain product. And that level, the, the uncertainty around that vaccine and the politicization of the Russian approach to its regulation and licensure and promotion has led to enormous vaccine skepticism in Eastern Europe and Central Asia. And so, you know, the least protected countries in Eastern Europe, Bulgaria, Romania, former Soviet states, Central Asia, there's very low uptake. People are and, – and the vaccines they have available are Sputnik V. So that's, that is going to be a challenge. And, you know, as we've learned with, with the HIV pandemic, <laughs> pandemics are called pandemics for a reason. It's everywhere. And uh, you just can't, you know, take Russia off the table and say, well, that's a Russian problem. We have little influence there because that's not how viruses work. Yeah. And I, I think w when you think about the therapeutic options for HIV, for instance, mm -hmm. you know, I, I mean, yeah. we've been talking about this counterpoint between the HIV response and the COVID-19 response. You know, there isn't the kind of controversy over which therapies are going to be the best choices in HIV. There's much more consensus about first-line, second-line regimens, and and they're available in, in most of the world. I mean, yes, there's still disparities in some cases, but uh, and of course, we've been at it for 20 years. That's another part of it. But, but with COVID-19 vaccines, as you say, you see these, partly the hesitancy is, is for real reasons, that people aren't sure that some of the vaccines are effective. But even when you have effective vaccines, there's still hesitancy. Yes. And I wonder, what do you think is driving that hesitancy where we haven't seen that with HIV antiretrovirals? People have been eager to take them because they were life-saving. And just as effective COVID-19 vaccines are life-saving as well. Yeah, yeah. Well, I guess I would say a couple of things. One is that you always see less hesitancy and less resistance when it's treatment-related because people are sick mm -hmm. and you know, until there are effective treatments, there's there's that very strong demand. I think it's fascinating that in the U.S. in precisely the same communities where we see vaccine hesitancy, there's less concern about the broadly neutralizing antibodies. People are more willing to take those. They're more willing to take the antivirals. And, uh, you know, that's hard to understand. From a prevention science perspective, we would, of course, always say primary prevention is better. <laughs> and you really don't want to get sick with this virus. But people have, you know, basically voted with their feet and, and would prefer that. And, for example, treatments that are known to not be efficacious and even harmful, like hydroxychloroquine and now, of course, ivermectin, again, are being used in those populations that are resistant to, to vaccines. So, so that, that is a, that's a challenging dynamic. I will say that analogous to that in terms of HIV, that one of the places where you do see more hesitancy and reluctance is with PrEP. Because now, again, you're in the position of being a healthy, uninfected person, mm -hmm. and you have to take an antiviral medication. And in contrast to somebody who is feeling sick, and goes on AIDS antivirals uh, and, you know, gains weight and feels better and has their energy come back. You know, PrEP is, is a preventive medication that has side effects for people who otherwise would be healthy and don't need it necessarily except to reduce their HIV risk. So we see that and, and there is a racial ethnic divide there. There's much higher rates of PrEP hesitancy in African-Americans. 
for example. And some of that is because there are higher rates of renal disease in a number of African-American populations. And you hear more concern about the kidney complications, particularly with tenofovir. And of course, there's been also a disinformation, misinformation campaign around that, mm. which has been very effective and which has implicated, dare I say it, meta AKA Facebook, <laughs> where these constant, you know, there's constant promotion of these class action lawsuits against Truvada for kidney disease. And what comes across is have you or someone you know been on PrEP and had renal failure? You know, and there aren't class action lawsuits. That isn't actually happening. It's mm. disinformation, but it's spreading on social media. Let me come back to uh, some of the questions that we were talking about earlier about how the, the HIV infrastructure that was there. I mean, you've oh, yes. spoken about yeah. how the clinical trials infrastructure that was built by NIH and, you know, with many collaborators over, over many years could pivot quickly to looking at COVID-19 and you know, given us some examples of that. But, you know, is one of the unintended consequences of leveraging existing HIV infrastructure for the COVID-19 response that that would work well in countries that have a significant HIV burden and a significant HIV infrastructure. But what about countries that were affected by COVID-19 where you didn't have that infrastructure? Yeah, no, that that is an extremely important consideration because, you know, we invested in the HIV prevention trials, vaccine trials, clinical trials, infrastructure, of course, based on prevalence and incidence. You have to do that. So I'm an investigator on the HIV prevention trial network. We really can't enroll populations that have under about 2% incidence per year. So that limits you to very high burden countries because you need the incidence. The same, of course, has been true of the ACTG. Now, Unfortunately, the U.S. remains a country where we have high incidence in some populations, particularly men who have sex with men and transgender women who have sex with men. So we can do prevention trials for HIV in the U.S. and we can do vaccine trials for HIV in the U.S. What we can't do, for example, is trials in heterosexual uh, risk populations for HIV because nobody has the incidence. So all of that work is in East and Southern Africa, which is where you can do, you can answer those questions. So there's been an enormous investment there in laboratory infrastructure, clinical trials infrastructure, in the human research nurses and, and outreach workers and, and ID docs and all of those people. So that infrastructure was able to pivot swiftly to becoming the COVID vaccine prevention network. The ACTG immediately started doing antiviral trials. The HPTN, which had just finished the first big uh, study, VRC01, of a broadly neutralizing antibody for HIV prevention, just pivoted quickly because they could into doing broadly neutralizing antibodies, BNAB trials for COVID. So, you know, it was, it was extraordinarily synergistic. It leaves out all those parts of the world for example, South Asia, where there's very little investment in this area and where there's been serious COVID. And of course, Eastern Europe, Central Asia, we don't really have a, a clinical research infrastructure, neither do they. And and the lower burden countries, the lower burden countries for HIV in Africa, which also have not been a PEPFAR focus. So for example, West Africa, 
where the epidemic looks very different. We saw this with the Ebola outbreak in West Africa. And it was really very striking because, you know, Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, these were not high burden HIV countries. And so there was not a big PEPFAR or global fund investment. They were fragile post-conflict states and they just did not have the public health infrastructure to respond to what was something also new, urban Ebola. Those are, those are the first urban Ebola epidemics we've ever seen. And it turns out it's got a different epidemiology to, <laughs> to our chagrin. It's so you know, transmissible in these dense urban settings. But a number of other countries that also had related outbreaks, good examples uh, would be Nigeria, Uganda, DRC. They actually did pretty well. And a lot of that reason is because of the PEPFAR laboratory infrastructure, the ID infrastructure, the investments there that allowed them to really have a much more vigorous response to, to Ebola. So we saw it with Ebola. Now we've seen it in spades with COVID and mm -hmm. HIV. You know, how about a country like Russia, which doesn't, I mean, first of all, it has resources so that it's not like, uh, you know, Niger, which uh, you yeah. know, uh, yeah. is affected yeah. by these pandemics, but doesn't have the level of resources that a country like Russia has. You know, how do you deal with emerging pathogens in a country like that where you don't have that kind of cooperative yeah. uh, development of infrastructure yeah. beforehand? Well, I'll say a couple of things. One is we know that the Russian data uh, and their surveillance system and their reporting and particularly their reporting of mortality is deeply flawed. This has been the subject of great debate within Russia and, and a number of, of really credible Russian scientists have, have been bemoaning the fact that they have so little ability to really know what's going on. And their way of recording deaths, mortality and death certificates is that you, you die of the organ that failed. So if your heart fails, you've died of a cardiac arrest even if you're on a ventilator because you have COVID, <laughs> right? So you can't rely on their data. But even with what they are reporting and what we can see, they're having an extremely serious epidemic. Now, the same is true in HIV. So they, you know, Russia was a part of the Glen Eagles agreement. The, the deal, the G8 deal was Russia, the G7 plus Russia, mm -hmm. that created the two-tiered pricing system. And that deal essentially said that the G7 plus Russia would pay full fare for antivirals, but the companies would do these generic licenses and the rest of the world would get them a little bit above cost, but not much. So that is why, you know, a Dalyutegravir-based regimen in the U.S. is still around 28 grand a year with all the lab elements, and in South Africa, it's 75 a year. And that difference is why PEPFAR and the Global Fund can, can work and can succeed and why countries can, can treat so many people. Russia pays full fare for antivirals because of that G8 deal, but actually their healthcare system is horribly underfunded and they really can't afford that. Putin was doing that to, you know, for nationalistic reasons, but it's proved to be a terrible mistake. There still is essentially no PrEP access, but the most fundamental issue for the Russian HIV epidemic is that they have absolutely refused to implement the public health policies and programs that we know work. So they have a huge problem with injection drug use. That has been true for decades. And they won't do modern substitution therapy. They reject methadone. They reject, reject buprenorphine. They allowed the Global Fund to fund needle and syringe exchange. But as soon as the Global Fund changed its funding mechanism, 
And, you know, the, most of those countries were deemed then to be basically graduates, too wealthy to, to qualify for global fund dollars. The harm reduction programs just went away. Mm -hmm. Ditto the programs for sex workers. We evaluated the global programs program for female sex workers in three Siberian cities, an unbelievable undertaking, found it to be highly effective, and within a year it was completely gone. So they are not still not doing the basics. They're not doing the basics of surveillance. They're not doing the basics of, of treatment support and adherence for people. And the result is that, uh, you know, Europe's HIV epidemic is expanding entirely because of Russia. And when people talk about the Eastern Europe, Central Asian epidemic as still being in expansion mode, that's true. But 85% of the cases are in Russia and Ukraine. And it is really Russia and the Russian parts of Ukraine that it is controlling uh, that are driving those numbers. And when we analyzed their data, they one year put it on, put it uh, up on the web and we downloaded it and I had a Russian speaking uh, student translate it and we analyzed it. I actually heard from the head of the Russian surveillance system and he said, you are correct. Everything you've said is correct, but I would like you to see this other paper of ours that we have published on our estimates. And it was in Russian. So again, we had to translate it. And the crux of it was they estimated that they had diagnosed at most 50% of HIV infections in Russia. So he was asking us to double our estimates. It's a tragedy and it's a preventable tragedy. And nobody has been able to really to crack that nut, I have to say. It's, it's a lot of it is that there's a very powerful group of providers in Russia who are called narcologues narcologists and they are dug in against substitution therapy and they have their own ideas, uh, most of which involve uh, mandatory detox in detention facilities with people handcuffed to beds, which of course have been shown repeatedly to be ineffective but also increase overdose risks mm. upon release dramatically because people lose tolerance. So finally, let's let's take a look at, at the broader context of global recovery from the mm. COVID-19 pandemic. You know, we've talked already about the way in which lockdowns and quarantines and public health and safety measures have created economic disruption and job losses around the world, in addition to the public health challenges that, that people have faced in different countries. In Africa, for instance, um, we know from the World Bank uh, that something like 30 million more people have uh, fallen into extreme poverty this year as a result of these these dual pandemics. And, you know, the global economy, while it's going to recover this year by about, uh, you know, the IMF predicts a global growth rate of about 5.6% in 2021, but that's on the average. In emerging markets and developing countries, it's going to be much slower to recover because of the, the blows that uh, these economies have faced from COVID-19 in particular. So the question is, you know, with these kinds of economic and social disruptions from pandemics, They've affected global supply chains. They've created new constraints on health systems operations in countries rich and poor, as you've talked about. What are the steps we have to take to ensure a more integrated response to both COVID and HIV AIDS and better prospects for global health in the long run? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that is uh, that's a, a really great question, and we're all we're all grappling with it. I, I would say the first thing is that. The model that we have, which has been essentially that the industrialized nations make vaccines and then the lower income countries wait in line and, and basically have something like a charity model, mm -hmm. you know, a couple of million doses here and a couple of million doses there, that has patently failed and it's still failing. 
right? We are, we're, we're not there. And I think what you're going to see, and that's already there, this is emerging very clearly, is that there's a, a very big move to build more capacity uh, to respond to pandemics and also to manufacture vaccines in low and middle income countries. And I think that's absolutely right. That has to be the way it goes. This is really the only way that we made global distribution of antivirals available. And remember that the generic licenses went really to four countries that had the biotech capacity uh, and became the manufacturing hubs for their regions. And that's Brazil, uh, Thailand, India, and South Africa. So they, again, are already clearly going to be in, in the forefront of this vaccine effort. Rwanda is looking at uh, biotech as an investment in its future. They want to make mRNAs uh, probably for multiple diseases. South Africa has already cut a deal. And China is intending, they've signed a deal with BioNTech, the other side of the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, partnership, to manufacture a billion doses of mRNA vaccines in China. So that model we have to fix. I think the second thing is that everybody now wants to look at pandemic security. But, you know, in, in global health, we've been thinking about, about health security for a long time. And at the core of that health security agenda is the idea of equity and more equitable distribution and that all of humanity is in this together. <laughs> you know, that, that has really been the motivator. And now what you're seeing is the potential for this to be more seen not just as health security, but also as national security, mm -hmm. uh, to be more nationalistic, uh, to be more uh, uh, driven by in-country agendas. And that, I think, goes really to the detriment of, of uh, the direction we need to go in, which is not more nationalism and less solidarity, <laughs> but more, right? Uh, we need to be less nationalistic. We need, we need, uh, we need, really need to, uh, think about how to respond. And, you know, we, we, we got better at this with Ebola uh, to some degree by really saying essentially, you know, we need to build the capacity to respond to Ebola where it is and not to end up with it in Texas, right? This was the famous mm -hmm. comment. Um, but that's easy with a virus like Ebola. It, of course, has turned out to be almost impossible with a virus as infectious as COVID and in particular with Delta. I do think that... Um, uh, you know, the, the establishment of the African CDC was an important advance, but it's also true that the global health sort of governance structure that we have, such as it is, um, is challenging. And the, the lack, uh, in a way, of independence of the ability of WHO, which is so beholden to all of its member states, um, has really been in pretty, pretty stark relief. And, uh, you know, there's no question uh, they were much too slow in declaring a global health emergency. Uh, you know, they, they have uh, really struggled. The COVAX mechanism has struggled, is not going to be able to, to deliver. Um, so this is a time to really think about also the, the governance architecture for global health and, and, and uh, that, that in some ways needs to be more nimble and more connected to biotech <laughs> than it's been, uh, but also uh, needs to have more teeth and more enforcement capacity. Um, uh, you know, it, it, it essentially uh, has shown uh, that it really can't stand up, for example, to powerful interests of powerful countries. I think that that's an, an important insight, and it's one that uh, you know we see the world struggling with now. As there's uh, 
There are various conversations at the multilateral level about how to improve the response to COVID-19, and all of those tensions are, are clear. Yeah. You know, two things I just want to pick up on in, in what you did say and what you didn't say. One of the things that's come out of our conversation is that on the side of the science and uh, research into an emerging pandemic like COVID, it seems that the, well, tell me if you agree with this, that the global community did a pretty good job on that. I mean, the genome was published oh, right yes. away. The vaccines were developed yeah, in yeah. record time. The you know, biomedical we, science is a triumph. Yeah, it's a triumph. Yeah. So that. So I think there's some lessons to be learned there too, and we can probably improve, for instance, surveillance networks and some of the other aspects of it. That, mm -hmm. you know, that the scientific community knows well what needs to be done next, so that we're better prepared the next time. The one thing you didn't mention was money. So yeah. talk a little bit about <laughs> yeah. about financing. Well, well, just to say, you know, we we have invested in biotech, uh, and so have many other countries and governments. But nobody's invested in it more than than the U.S. with the NIH. I mean, it is the largest and most well funded and well supported uh, biomedical research enterprise there is by leagues, by the way, and that has paid off spectacularly. Uh, what we have not invested in commensurately, either in the U.S. or globally, is the public health infrastructure, which is actually we've been divesting from for 20 years in the U.S. while biotech has roared ahead. And so, you know, we ended up with spectacular products and very weak and broken and fragmented systems to deliver them. So, so that is a huge problem. The resources are going to be needed to do that. This idea that we're going to uh, more equitably distribute the manufacturing and the R&D that's going to take an investment. Now, I do have to say that um, it's not a charity investment, right? That also has to be an investment from the host countries. And I would take you back in global health, you know, to one of the most famous sort of outcomes, which was the Abuja Declaration, mm -hmm. about the level at which developing countries need to invest their own resources in the health sector and in the education sector to really develop. And none of those countries, none of the African countries really have met the Abuja targets. Hopefully, they're going to start doing that, right? And this is going to look like public-private partnerships. And that's been a huge part of the U.S. success, right? The NIH funds the public aspect of it. But there's also been, of course, massive investment on the part of the private sector and a lot of that in collaboration. So, you know, the Moderna vaccine we called for a while, the NIH Moderna vaccine, it, it has its roots in the, in the vaccine research center at the NIH. There's no question about that. And, and in collaboration, obviously, with Moderna. That's going to, I think, be the model for many countries. They're going to have to really start doing that and, and seriously invest in their health sectors. That also matters. That's both true and clear, and it's a good point on which to end because we could go on for hours. It's just <laughs> Clearly. Been, been fascinating. And I, I want to thank you, Chris, for this wide-ranging and provocative conversation. It's really been a pleasure to talk to you today. I've thoroughly enjoyed it, and, and we covered a lot of ground. I, I, think, you know, I think these issues are so highly relevant because they're all in play. You know, we're, we're not out of TB, HIV, malaria, or COVID. And we're not out of these challenges with, with the, the global public health system. We're reforming as we go in the middle of dual pandemics. And uh, easier said than done. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's both a challenge and it's an inspiration to keep working hard. Indeed, so, yeah. indeed. Well, thank you. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for listening to AIDS Existential Moment. To learn more about CSIS's research on the global fight against HIV-AIDS, 
go to CSIS.org and look for the Global Health Policy Center program page.